0: In 1686, having already spent six years serving in the British Parliament, William Wilberforce was finally sick and tired of living for his own glory. So he started living for God's. He trusted his life to Jesus and having been forgiven of his sins, experienced new birth. He would become famous from this point forward for his tireless efforts to abolish the British slave trade, trading for slaves in Africa and selling them in the droves in West Indies. And while abominable, it was incredibly lucrative. This represented 80% the slave trade did of British foreign income. But it was not the first political effort in response to his new relationship with God. Wilberforce actually first undertook and successfully established in 1690 the Society for the Reformation of Manners. Which, yeah, sounds pretty silly, if not downright irresponsible, compared to the importance of abolishing this ongoing slave trade. Wilber first, though, was neither just biding his time, nor was he OCD about table etiquette and where the little fork goes. Now, he recognized that in order to make progress in bringing peace to to hostile and deeply prejudicial kinds of relationship, he and his colleagues first had to address the need to establish basic respect— basic concern in any relationship. See, what Wilberforce began to notice among his English countrymen and countrywomen is is that his people were lacking the tools to just approach strangers and acquaintances with basic love and respect. And that needed to happen before taking on something much bigger. Now, at the risk of sounding like a, a curmudgeonly old man, I would suggest a similar reformation may be needed today. I don't have any statistics to prove that manners and etiquette are sort of past their time and out of sorts, nor can I think of any way to quantify that they're in decline other than anecdotal evidence, right? The things I hear from people when the subject comes up, and the things I see personally, I see it in my own kids, I see it in their friends, I see it in my own life, embarrassingly, I see it in my family, my extended family. And I hear it every time the topic comes up with other people. People say, man, people just don't have manners anymore. Chivalry is dead. And Maybe it is. But I can't legitimately preach a sermon about keeping your elbows off the dinner table. All right, It's just not anywhere in the text. But that wasn't Wilberforce's aim. Wilberforce's aim was to help people express love and concern in establishing a real relationship with someone else you don't or just barely know. Someone you meet on the side of the street. That was his concern. A local school counselor, has been a counselor for 20 years, 20 plus years, about a few months ago, told me she sees the same problem in every kid every year. Almost every kid every year. She said that that kids for the last 20 years that she's seen go through her, her school and through her office don't know how to make a new friend. And then... Upon meeting their parents, she understands why. (laughs) That was her next comment. She's like, then I meet the parents. And it all began to make sense. And that's something that the Bible does address. The Old Testament book of Proverbs offers wisdom to a young man who's making his way through life. And it includes wisdom for how to approach strangers and acquaintances, a person with respect and with love, with the ultimate goal of, Establishing a godly relationship, a relationship around our God. So for any of you here who feel at times just socially awkward or socially spent, socially weary, I hope this morning you can glean some wisdom with me from God's word. I think we can this morning. Starting in Proverbs 16, verse 30. And you're going to find every proverb uh, this morning, well, most of them anyway, on the back of your news sheet here. So make sure you have one of those. We're going to start with Proverbs sixteen, thirty where we see two very different but common social approaches. Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things, and he who purses his lips brings evil to pass. Let's talk about the first half there. Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. So the first social approach is someone who acts friendly but is insincere. It's the social wink. Many of us try to persuade people quickly to our side and socially just by being clever, by being even sarcastic to try to be funny, right? And often it's, it's a plan to build an insincere relationship, which the person engages in unwittingly, right? We want a, a quick, shallow connection with the person. Let's be clever. Let's be funny. And then we can be done with it. And we have to consider that uh, sarcastic relationships are often what the person has primarily experienced most of their life in their upbringing. Or they've experienced such hurt that they still want to have some relationship, right? But they don't want to get too close. And so cleverness, sarcasm is sort of a a defense mechanism when meeting people and getting to know them. Don't mishear me, please. It's okay to laugh, to enjoy people, to have fun and merriment. But I want to encourage anyone here who's prone to sort of that, that clever, winking, sarcasm kind of way of approaching people. Ask yourself before you enter a social situation, am I trying to get people just to quickly like me and be done with them? Or am I open to the possibility of gaining a godly friendship? Is it just going to be in and out? Or do I really want to consider a godly friendship when I approach anyone, even a stranger or an acquaintance? So that's that's the first kind of approach we see in Proverbs 16.30. The second is remaining unmoved by strangers. Just to remain completely unmoved, it took a little bit of, of study and work to understand what he who purses his lips really means. To be clear, he purses he who purses his lips is not God's proverb against the duck face selfie. All right, it's not the, it's not it's, God's not saying don't do that. All right, I, re- I realized like for people younger than me they might read into it that way, but it's the picture of a person who is just single minded, whether it's a workaholic consumed by success, a parent consumed with their kids and their activities, or any sinner consumed with their idol. It has a single-minded pursuit such that you don't even notice the strangers and the people around you. It's that kind of look. It's the, the, the look that's imagined here in Proverbs is more like this. And try that. Actually, let's, let's do this together. I want you to make, make that face, if you would. Now turn to the person next to you and make it. Come on. A full turn. I don't see full turns there. And, and, and here's why, right? It's not very welcoming. It's not a welcoming face. But, but this is sort of the, the steely face of someone who's just bent towards that single aim in their life such that they don't see anyone else around them. They don't let anything else get in the way. Certainly not strangers or acquaintances who are inconveniences to their pursuit of life. And often such a person, and maybe that's even you. I know I've been there before. You, you don't think you're hurting others. And so you bring evil to pass, often unwittingly. But doing so is just, just a casualty of doing what you've got to do in life. So those are two social approaches. But a better approach comes in Proverbs 16, verse 21, where we read, The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases Persuasiveness. Now, discernment is just a fancy word for identifying the right approach. There are many approaches in life. You gotta pick them out of a lineup. You can do it. That is discernment. You've identified it, and wisdom is just putting that approach into practice. The right approach in this case is sweetness of speech, which can persuade a stranger and acquaintance into a godly friendship, which is a wonderful thing. Jesus advances this approach and his disciples when they were to knock on a stranger's door. Look at, well, Matthew 10, verse 12, it's going to be up on the screen. As you enter the house, Jesus said, greet it. Display in your speech courtesy. The Apostle Paul mentored two young men similarly, to act similarly. To a young Titus, he said, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Titus 3, verse 2. To young Timothy, he gave further wisdom based on the kind of person you approach, based on their season of life. So 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. Never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as though he were your own father. Talk to the younger men as you would to your own brothers. Treat older women like you would your mother, and treat younger women with all purity as your own sisters, like you would your own sisters. So we should be thinking through, as we approach strangers, how we can let our speech be sweet to them, and particularly in different seasons of life. So thinking through, how do we approach an older man or woman in our life, with, hopefully with deference, with humility, yes sirs and yes ma'ams, or, or whatever greeting your culture may dictate, showing respect. I found that um, those in this season of life often feel that they're without purpose, that they've been used up, older men and women, that their, their best years are behind them. So use words to encourage their contribution in church, in society, in their families. Be that kind of person. Just demonstrate an eagerness to hear more about their life. Acknowledge the victories of their past and the hurts they've endured. Sympathize with them. Leviticus 19.32, in the law of the Lord, we're told, show your fear of God by standing up in the presence of elderly people and showing respect for the age. I am the Lord. We're also told, to, to, Paul says, to treat younger women like sisters with purity. How do you do that? Men, ask if you can be a practical help, to younger women, especially when a physical demand is at hand. And you can be of assistance and courteous. Speak with sympathy, even if you don't know what that younger woman is saying or what she's going through. We don't often men quite get it. That's okay. Still, speak with sympathy. Seek to understand. Be genuine but kind. Women, when you're speaking with a younger woman, acknowledge the pain of youthful problems rather than disregard them because you're older and you know better. And now you have wisdom. Because for that younger woman, that experience is real. That experience is no less painful than it was for you at her age. So acknowledge, sympathize with those problems, even though you've moved on in life. How do we approach younger men? <clears throat> for a man, ask about his passions. Ask about what he's passionate about and take an interest in them, even if they're sometimes slightly misguided. Or you know that they're eventually going to burn out with them. Sympathize, encourage as much as you can. So you see, by being sweet with our speech, kind with our speech, courteous, we can persuade someone more into a godly relationship, not to be manipulative, but for friendship. But also we're told in Proverbs to approach a stranger or acquaintance with generosity. Look on your new sheet again, Proverbs 18, 16. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great Think about that again. A man's gift makes room for him. Imagine if you would, every person has space for so many friendships in their life, and it's only a certain amount of space. What does a gift often do? A gift makes more space. A gift opens the way for more room, for more room, so you can be invited into their life. That's what a gift often does. It enlargens the relationship. And God loves to spark a friendship through just generosity. Look at Proverbs 19.6. Many seek the favor of a generous man. Everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. Here are some practical ideas from gift giving. I actually talked to three of the best gift givers I know and sort of am summarizing four practical ways, practical ideas for gift giving. Number one, share what you already have. An unopened beverage gum in your pocket, right? half your sandwich, a ride in your vehicle if that's appropriate, a, a phone or laptop for someone in need, the umbrella or random extra thing you have in your car that you could give to someone else. It could be a snack, it could be a packet of tissues, whatever it might be. Share what you already have. Number two, spontaneously purchase on chance encounters. Spontaneously purchase on chance encounters. If you see an acquaintance in front of your neighborhood barista, why not offer to pay for what they're buying? I'd say, you know what? I'm going to pick that up today. Grocery stores. Maybe not. That's pretty expensive, isn't it? <laughs> I think of it. That would be a big bill. I don't know. That's up to you if you want to be that generous. But I will say this. One time I was in a grocery store, saw an acquaintance, someone I didn't know super well, and we were just talking. They said, you know what? They turned, we turned around, looked at the rack. And they said, pick out your favorite candy. I want to buy you something. Got me some Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Bam. They made a friend that day. <laughs> tell you that. It's wonderful. Here's another idea. Bring a gift to someone's house, whether it's for a special occasion, a party, a community group, or just a, just a casual dinner. Flowers, if those are appropriate. A bottle of wine, if that's your thing, it doesn't have to be pricey. If I'm going to a family's house, one thing I've done before is I've actually asked the parents each child's favorite candy, favorite sweet, and I've just gone by the or gone by the gas station on the way, picked it up, just I can, I give it to the kids. Just a little way, you can be generous. What about a handwritten note or an email? I know that. We don't all have P.O. boxes, or you don't give out your P.O. boxes. I get that. So sometimes that's hard. So at least an email. But there's something about a handwritten note, right? Go in and get a little stationery this week. F- find a pad, a nice pad you can just write on. Write a note. Put it in an envelope. Give it to someone the next time you see them. Say thank you. It's a real blessing to get that, isn't it? We're not expecting. When it's not on your birthday, Valentine's Day, or some special anniversary, you get a card from someone. What a blessing, what a gift. So approach a stranger or acquaintance with generosity. That can make room in the relationship. Now, there are, there are two problems with displaying courtesy. There are two big problems with displaying courtesy, whether it be through your speech or through your generosity. It will be misinterpreted. There's no way of avoiding it, it will be misinterpreted. Some of you will think, some will, sorry, some will think you were doing it for personal gain. Some people will think you're just, that person is just doing it to make them feel better about themselves. Some people will just imagine, well, that's just their tradition. It's their habit. It's how they were brought up, say. As my commanding and friends would say. And, and, and that's then what they're doing just because it's their habit and tradition. So some people will just say, you know, it's not what it seems. And some people will just disregard it altogether. Many will take for granted your deliberate effort. And they'll throw that thank you note in the trash. The thoughtful question that you ask a person, the sympathy you show will go unheeded. And it will seem like in that moment that perfect courtesy is all for naught. That thoughtfulness, that kindness, that generosity isn't really worth it. Except that genuine respect and concern is always judged rightly and never disregarded when it's ultimately directed towards the right person. If you knew respect this, it's always going to be judged rightly. It's never going to be disregarded if you can find the right person to show it to, ultimately. Proverbs speaks of one such person, a social leader, if you will, a king. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs 16. You're going to have to use a Bible for this. Proverbs 16. That's going to be on page 459. If you want to use one of the Bibles in these chair pockets or at the end of your aisles, you can find a Bible just like this as well. It's going to be on page 459, Proverbs 16. It's not going to be up on the screen. You're going to have to use a physical or a phone Bible. It's it's hard for us to wrap our minds, I think, around a functioning king, right? There's some ceremonial kings and queens, right? Great Britain, for instance, still has that functioning today, and we see the presence of that in many of our governmental buildings here. But in terms of a functioning king, really probably none of us have experienced that. But any ancient Near Eastern monarch was responsible for two large functions. Number one, to represent his society. He was the figurehead to represent his society to other nations. He was also supposed to represent his God to the people. And we find in Proverbs 16 a long list about the king. Now you'll notice when we've been reading Proverbs so far that Proverbs is a lot like the Bible's Twitter. All right, you got like 160 characters or less. Here's the statement of wisdom. Then you move on to the next one because the next one's kind of random. It doesn't really connect it. But every once in a while, Proverbs connects these thoughts together. And that's what happens here in Proverbs 16. Starting in verse 10, we'll read through verse 12. Or we'll read all the way to verse 15 eventually. Here we go. Starting in verse 10 An oracle is on the lips of a king, his mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Now, if you're really paying attention, you'll notice one of those things is not like the other. And that's verse 11. Because it doesn't mention a king specifically and his justice and his judgment Many weights and measures were first authorized, though, by by what's called the royal standard. So weights used in the marketplace, measures used in the marketplace to determine how much someone was to pay or how how much uh, a merchant was to charge were first issued in the royal palace and given a royal standard. They were inscribed with that royal standard before entering the marketplace. And so when someone saw that weight or that measure, you could trust them. You could say, well, I'm going to... I'm going to buy that. I'm gonna, that's a fair price that I'm getting. Solomon is walking this back a step further to say that as God's representative on earth, these are ultimately the Lord's standards. Because what comes from an ideal king is ultimately the judgment of the Lord. The ideal king is someone who did not err in or sin in judgment. And so there is no misinterpretation of a king towards his people. When a person would come with a gift towards a king, a king would be able to discern the motivation behind that gift, the ideal king. So the just judgment of a king is an ideal king, but also Proverbs 16, 13 through 15. Let's read that too. Righteous lips are the delight of a king. He loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face, there is life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. The ideal king is a pleased king. The ideal king is one who doesn't disregard our actions, but then bestows favor upon the people. Upon his people. He delights in his people. He genuinely delights in them. He loves to see his people. Verse 14 hints that this is possible. Might be strange because it begins with a king's wrath. King's wrath is a messenger of death, but we notice a wise man will appease it. And all the commentators say well, what we should notice about this verse is that it is possible to appease a king's wrath. It is possible to pacify and ultimately please him. We read that in verse 15. I want to read that again. These are just a beautiful verse and an encouraging, uplifting verse. In the light of a king's face, there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. And there's something, isn't there, about seeing someone's favor in their face, right? Someone's countenance of graciousness and love towards you. All of the priests of Israel were supposed to remind God's people, it says in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, and give you peace. And that does give you peace, doesn't it? I hope so. It's meant to. This, then, is the, the picture in Proverbs of a just king, a perfectly well-pleased king. But such a king was never fulfilled in the history of Israel. There was no king like this. A king who always judged justly the intentions of someone. And a king who would be pleased, genuinely, to al- always to see his people. There was no such king. And in fact, 750 years passed and there was never a king in Israel again between the last king and until a new one emerged who spoke like the ideal king in Proverbs 16. So turn, if you will, one more time to the Gospel of John chapter 5 starting in verse 19. That's going to be on 762, page 762 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided. John chapter 5 verse 19 and listen to a just and well pleased King. John five, nineteen through thirty. So Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise, for the Father loves the Son. He shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That person does not come into judgment, is passed from death to life. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming, it's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, I can do nothing On my own, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Listen to that again. The father has given judgment to the son. He's given authority to execute judgment. My judgment is just. It always is. Yet this is king, this social leader, lives to please his king, his father. He says, I seek not to do my own will, the will of him who sent me, The son does only what he sees his father doing. And the father loves the son. The father's countenance is upon the son. And that brings the son delight. When you show respect and concern with your words, through your deeds, or with generosity towards a stranger, King Jesus never misinterprets it. He's always pleased. You and I, guys, are created to find satisfaction in the favor of, the countenance, and the light of our king's face. That's what we were created for, to find that favor in our king and our God. Many people call it living for the audience of one, that while others may not respond to us and often won't, we can know that our king always does. C.S. Lewis, who you've heard me mention before, (laughs) uh, struggled mightily with the idea of receiving approval, receiving praise. He thought it was kind of weak and a little bit grotesque. You know, when you, you think to yourself, well, what am I doing here? Or you see it in someone else, really looking for someone else's approval, and you're like, ugh. Until he realized that this idea of approval, of seeking someone's favorable countenance is actually scriptural. And so probably his most famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, He explains this a bit further. He says, nothing can eliminate from the famous parable, the divine accolade, well done, good and faithful servant. And when I read that, a good deal of what I've been thinking my whole life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undistinguished pleasure in being praised. Not only in a child either, but in a horse or in a dog. Apparently what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding was in fact the most humble and childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, and a creature before its creator. Lewis goes on to explain that he found his deepest satisfaction in life of having pleased one, rightly loved, and rightly feared. And that's where satisfaction truly comes. and It does for us as well. Living for the audience of one, you may not get the response you want from others, but you will always be pleasing to a king whose favor shines upon you. Guys, on top of everything else, living for the audience of one is eminently practical. Either at this point here at the end of the sermon, you're thinking to yourself, probably, in one of two general camps, yes and amen. It's about time someone preached on manners. Because this is in your wheelhouse, most likely. You're good at sort of generous speech, sweet speech, and being generous in your deeds and actions towards others, even towards strangers, perhaps to the point where it even exhausts you. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare lays a trap when people are big and all-important and god is small you either do one of two things you exhaust yourself or you get frustrated looking at the lack of response in everyone else i had a friend who recently became physically and psychologically exhausted from a week of just running around trying to please others and please others and please others until he realized that the end of that rope, at the end of just pleasing others, is not satisfaction, is not life. Ultimately, life is in the light of a king's face, King Jesus. So maybe you're in that camp, or you're honest enough to recognize that your social toolbox is lacking some tools. All right, You're adept with, with your thumbs at posting 140 characters or less, When it comes to live relationships, live encounters with strangers or acquaintances, it's awkward, even painful. And so you need to start demonstrating, start putting some of these practical things into practice of sweetness of speech, of manners towards others, of gift-giving in creative ways. But even you're, you're smart enough to recognize also there will always be people who don't respond. There will still be lack of friendship. And for both the socialite and the social struggler, they need the same thing, an audience of one, a king who's, in whose face there's life, and whose favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain, who would never get you wrong nor ever disregard you, a king for whom you can live and still accepts you when you mess up. I want to invite you to that king. His name is King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your wisdom in Proverbs. We're going to go on to talk about friendship. We're going to talk about uh, marriage. We're going to talk about our relationship with kids, relationship with, with others, even ourselves, Lord. But it all starts with the building block of relationships, just beginning a relationship with a, a, a stranger or an acquaintance. God, thank you so much this morning for practical wisdom how to show genuine care and concern towards someone we don't know. Many of us didn't grow up getting taught or getting that caught from the example of our parents or others around us. And so I pray this morning that you would help us practically implement love and concern and respect towards strangers, towards acquaintances, towards people we've just met. But God, I also know that ultimately, we won't find satisfaction there. Ultimately, we won't gain all the friends we've ever wanted or needed. Ultimately, we won't feel completely ever accepted by others, Lord, in the same way we can from a perfect leader, a perfect king, one whose face shines upon us, one who, in whose favor there is the light of life. And because of what you did on the cross, Jesus, we know that we're always accepted by you. And that we can please you when we love our neighbor as ourself. And ultimately, hearing good, well done, good and faithful servant will be what we want to hear and what we'll get to hear. We thank you. And we thank you, King Jesus, for making all this possible. It's in your name we pray. Amen.